after Thanksgiving, I just want to say right up front here, I'm thankful for all of you. One thing that I know I'm personally thankful for, this church family has truly been a blessing to me, to my family, and so I just want to say I'm grateful, grateful for all of you. So, thanks. Um, all right, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, and if you've been with us through this, we're coming to the end of a major section now where Jesus has been teaching his disciples in the upper room. It's the Passover meal, and it's the evening before Jesus is crucified. And here, Jesus is preparing his disciples for about what's about to happen. And this culminating moment kind of happens, this, this pivotal moment ends in a prayer, which we're going to spend the next few weeks focusing on. John 17 is what we often call Jesus' high priestly prayer. And so Advent starts next Sunday. Uh, and the next four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And so since John 17 is such an important text, what we're going to do is slow down a little, focus on this prayer of Jesus from John 17, specifically drawing our attention to how prayer brings glory to Christ, how we pray as we're sent into the world as, with the message of Christ, and then praying for oneness in the body of Christ. And so that's going to be kind of our theme through Advent. But first, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap up chapter 16. We need to see the last words that Jesus says to his disciples. He's about to be arrested, tried, crucified the next morning. So what are Jesus's parting words to his disciples? What do they need to know before he goes to the cross? Okay, here's the last thing he says to them. And it's the last verse of our text today. Jesus looks at his disciples right before he goes to the cross and he says, In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, this may seem odd at first blush here because you would think that Jesus, knowing that he's going to the cross to achieve, uh, achieve our redemption by conquering sin and evil and death, knowing that he's inaugurating the coming of a new creation through his resurrection, knowing that this victory is anticipating the final restoration of all things, you would think that Jesus would look at his disciples and say, everything's going to be fine. You have nothing to worry about. In fact, everything's going to get easier from now on. But he doesn't. Rather, Jesus presents a tension here, a sobering reality, a picture of what life will be like after he is resurrected and ascends to heaven. He, he says this to his disciples, essentially, troubles aren't going to go away in this world. In fact, things might get more difficult if you say you follow me. You remember all the passages about persecution we were just reading a couple weeks ago? He's looking at his disciples and he says, what I need you to remember is this. Despite present circumstances, I have overcome. So this tension, I mean, if we are honest, it's felt by all Christ followers who genuinely walk in faith as pilgrims in a world that's no longer our home. I'm assuming it's probably felt by you, and it's certainly, I know I feel this. There's a, there's a pastor and theologian named Dane Ortland. He describes this kind of, this reality this way. He says, Christianity is hard. One reason for this is the jarring tension between what we say is true of us now, that we belong to God. And what we experience day in and day out 
emotionally, relationally, physically, all the rest. He says, if we're God's children, we may wonder why there's seemingly, in our own perspective, so much senseless pain and adversity. He says, such pain can be disorienting for those seeking to walk faithfully with God. He says, the difficulty is not so much that life is painful, but that life is difficult despite and, and at the same time in parallel to the spectacular redemptive realities that we have in Christ. See, in our text this morning, Jesus actually looks his disciples in the eye and he says that this is by design. He says, we obviously, we'll see here, he, he knows perfectly well that we're going to encounter troubles in this world, but he doesn't promise to automatically remove those difficulties. Rather, Jesus promises that he has overcome in the grandest sense through his redemptive work on our behalf. So, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see this contrast or this tension in our passage all throughout. And so rather than like resolve that quickly right up front here, what we're going to do is read our text. And I want you to see, listening to these words of Jesus as they sink down deep into our souls. I want you to, to listen to what he says to his disciples and ponder the gravity of his final words before he goes to the cross. So grab your Bible, or if you need a copy of the Bible, raise your hand. Um, well, happy to hand you one today, uh, or if you want to keep it, you're welcome to. John 16, verses 16 to 33 is what I'm going to read this morning. So let's read these final words of Jesus before his prayer, before the cross. John 16, verse 16. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more. Then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father... They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? <laughs> we don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from, the, from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things 
and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming, and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you might have, you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right. This passage is filled with contrasts. It's filled with these contrasts that are deliberate and purposeful because at this moment, everything is about to change. Everything pivots at the cross. And so we have to remember, okay, if we step back for a moment and sort of think about this, this situation with the disciples, we have to remember the disciples did not have a category for a crucified Messiah who would rise from the dead. We often take this for granted. I think sometimes we look back on this moment and we've got the clarity of the events that have already occurred. We have God's word in our hand and we say, how come they couldn't see that coming? Well, the disciples, they're looking ahead to the next day. They can't imagine that Jesus would conquer by dying. And so at this moment, Jesus is looking at his disciples and illuminating this reality that everything before them is about to change. So here's what we're going to do. There's two things as we approach this text. What the first thing I want to do is highlight the contrasts and tensions in the text so that we can better understand this pivotal moment that's about to happen at the cross. Then we're going to, uh, secondly, we'll come back to consider Jesus's final words of, uh, that he says, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Let's go to those contrasts. Let's look at the contrasts and tensions in John 16. Go back to verse 16 with me and look at the text. This is what Jesus says. In a little while you will see me no more. Then after a little while, you will see me. This is kind of a cryptic statement that really confuses the disciples. At this moment, they really don't know what Jesus means by this. And frankly, there's some commentators throughout church history and even recently who, who are confused or, or debating about what Jesus means by this. Is Jesus talking about the next three days where he's going to die, be buried, they're not going to see him, but then he's going to rise on Sunday morning and they're going to see him again. Or is Jesus talking about his ascension and his second coming? You will no longer see me for a little while, but then you will see me and you will be overjoyed. Which one? Here's, here's what I want to do as we, as we ponder this question. I think this is a great opportunity to teach you some basic exegetical skills, some basic interpretive technique. Like how, how do we interpret what Jesus is saying, how do we figure out what he's describing here? And the key lies as we just look at the text together, go through a couple verses and look at some key words and how the thing unfolds. So go to verse 20 through 22. Jesus's response is the key where he introduces a contrast of grief and joy. So let's look at the Bible together. Look at verse 20. After Jesus sort of poses this question again, he says, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn 
while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Do you see the the words that he uses here? They are critical for how we understand what Jesus means. Now, when you hear the words weep and mourn and grieve, what do you think of? What do you think of? Death. Death. I think of a funeral. I think of, of seeing people at a graveside when a loved one has passed away. These are words, not only in English, but in the original language in Greek as well, that when you hear the words weep and mourn and grieve, especially we're in the same sentence together, the first clue we have in the text here by this word choice is that Jesus is talking about someone dying. That's clue number one. All right, let's look at verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy, so that it, uh, her joy that a child is born into the world. Now, Jesus takes this contrast of anguish and joy and he illustrates it by the pain of a mother in labor that results in the inexpressible joy of a baby that is brought into the world. And so this illustration, as, it, as, you, as you sort of think about it, it's describing a sudden and intense pain that all, it's ultimately a short duration compared to the ongoing joy of the advent of a new life that is born into the world. That small slice compared to the, the beauty of the, that life going forward draws out this contrast of lasting new life after brief, intense pain. Do you see the contrast there, even of time? So that's clue number two, that Jesus may be talking about his resurrection. Okay, verse 22. Read it with me, or follow along with me. So with you, Jesus says, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Okay, here Jesus takes this contrast of grief and joy again, and he says, Okay, you're going to see me again and your joy will be permanent. And this is exactly what happens as we see the rest of the Gospels unfold. Jesus appears to his disciples in Jerusalem and Galilee. And, and as we read this, as we look at what Jesus is describing, I mean, I would argue you could hardly say that the disciples would have to wait to be filled with joy until Jesus' second coming. That doesn't seem to ring true with the description of what he's saying here, as though they would remain in their grief uh, until Jesus' return. Rather, what we see, as you, especially as you see the Gospels unfold here, they are overjoyed when they see Jesus appear. They, their joy overflows in the early church as they're speaking and testifying about who Jesus is. And so here's our third clue. We're talking about temporary grief, and permanent joy. So when you put all this together, I think it's clear that Jesus is referring to his own death and resurrection and the resulting joy of the disciples that they will experience when they see him. So what we, what we see as Jesus is speaking to them is he's saying, hey, the next couple days are going to be really hard. But your joy, your joy when you see that I have risen from the dead will be overwhelming. We see him talking to them about the intense experience of pain they're about to endure, but that that's not the end of the story. 
You see, all of this, and we know because we're in John 16, it's all pointing ahead to the cross. And so far, Jesus has been using time as a way of marking a contrast. And as the passage unfolds, Jesus develops further this contrast of time to help us see how his redemptive work is the pivot point of history. But what's fascinating, and we're going to see this in a few moments, Jesus also uses this contrast of time to show the deficiency of his disciples' understanding and illuminating that. So let me draw your attention to a couple other key words that help us see this contrast of time. We saw one already in verse 22. The words are the words now and the words a time is coming or in that day. So when Jesus uses the word now, he uses this, for example, in verses 22 and 24 to describe a pre-cross reality before his death on the cross. He says in verse 22, now is your time of grief. Verse 24, until now you've not asked for anything in my name. In other words, I'm not, I, he's not acting as the mediator through his blood yet. Now is this pre-cross reality in this text. Then we see the words in that day or a time is coming as Jesus talking about the post-cross reality. Like verse 23, where he says, in that day, you'll no longer ask me anything. In other words, I won't physically be here. He says, but very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Or verse 26 is a good example. Though I've been speaking figuratively, Jesus says, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name. He will be our mediator and high priest, the one whom we have free access to the father in that day. Now, here's what this contrast means for the disciples. Here we are, this moment in history. Everything that they have known up to this point has foreshadowed the impending cross. Here they are, devout Israelites, Jews who are following the law. They're, they've been doing everything as God's people that they see. They've, they, a lot of these uh, young men have memorized the Torah. They see that up till now, they've had to offer daily sacrifices. They had to keep the law. They had to approach God through a priestly mediator at the temple. They were not born again. They do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them regenerated in their inner being, having the spirit as a down payment of the life to come. But what Jesus says here, he says that a time is coming, and in fact, they're right on the cusp of it, when those who trust in Jesus will approach God directly through the blood of Christ. As he's paid for our sin, as he's washed us clean, as he's fulfilled the law on our behalf and extended free forgiveness and redemption to be new creations anticipating the new heavens and new earth and the life to come. In other words, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, everything is about to change. You will endure temporary pain. You will watch me go to the cross and die. And everything in your eyes may seem lost. But this, this is for your redemption. That your joy will overflow when you see me rise precisely because a new reality is about to dawn. Okay, how do the disciples react to this? 
our, our contrast words, our key words, come up again. This time, ironically displaying the disciples' poor understanding. So listen for our key words again in verses 29 to 32. Let me read them, and you'll tune in to these words about time, like now, and a time is coming. All right, so listen. Verse 29. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need anyone to ask you questions. This makes us believe you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming, and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Did you see our key words come up again? Now, and a time is coming, over and over. Did you hear the odd tone of the disciples' response? It was almost arrogant, almost foolish and short-sighted. They kept using this word now over and over again, repeatedly, almost like a nervous turn of phrase to impress Jesus. They're going, oh, Jesus, now we get it. Now it's so clear. Yeah, now we understand. And Jesus looks at them and says, now you understand? He rebukes them. Now, many of your Bibles form Jesus' response in verse 31 as though it's a question. It's actually in the original language. It's just a statement. But because it's ironic, it sort of takes this kind of a, a confrontation. So Jesus looks at them and says, you now believe? And he sort of turns that word on its head. He brings it, he slingshots it right back at them. Oh, now we get it. He goes, now you get it? He actually uses a different word there for the word now that's even more forceful. Like it brings a confrontation to this moment. What he's doing is he's calling their bluff. In other words, even though they claim they believe he came from God, he says, and look at the very next words in verse 32, a time is coming when they will in fact scatter and abandon him when the moment of truth comes. And this is exactly what happens. It fulfills what was written by the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 13, verse 7, this actually gets quoted later on in, in the garden in Matthew's gospel, where Zechariah 13, 7 says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. All the disciples abandon him when push comes to shove. Friends, I don't, I don't want you to, to miss this, Okay. As Jesus confronts them with this, you know, do you really, do you really understand what's about to happen? His very next words after this rebuke are words of encouragement. He like picks up the pieces. You know, he looks at his disciples and, and calls their bluff on these things. And yet he stops here at this final moment before he goes to the cross. And he reminds them of why he's saying these things. He pauses here to draw them back into intimate fellowship with him, to reveal his very heart. Look at verse 33. Here's the reason why. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Friends, as Jesus is about to go to the cross, 
what does he leave with his disciples? Does he promise them they'll be spared from the agony of watching him die? No. Does he promise them that they're going to avoid troubles in this life? No. Does he promise them that if, if they stick with him through thick and thin, that they'll have power and authority and everybody's going to be so impressed with them? No. Does he say that they'll get material things or they'll get easy answers to the difficulties to come? No. This is what he does. He looks at them straight in the eye and he says, I give you myself. He says, in me, you may have peace. No other source, no other person, no other thing, no other name could bring about true and lasting shalom of God than Jesus Christ and his resurrection, his death and his resurrection. He says, you have no idea what you're about to face, but dear brothers, dear sisters, dear friends, just what he says to you, in me, Jesus says, you have peace. And here's where we come back to the tension we started with this morning. When we have Jesus himself, when we have his peace, his very next words say, in this world you might have trouble, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What are we supposed to make of this? What do, we, what do we make of this reality? I think we need to stop here and ponder for a moment for what it means that the overcomer himself allows troubles in our lives. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about what it means to have troubles in this world. Um, you remember earlier I, I mentioned Dane Ortland, the pastor and theologian. He's just helped me understand some of these things. He's shed some light on these realities. This is what he says. He says, a Christian is someone who's undergone a transfer of citizenship. We now belong somewhere else. Before the new birth, we were at home in the world, but strangers to God. After the new birth, we are strangers in the world and at home with God. He says, while this sudden exchange results in new joy for this life and the next, it also results in new pain in this life. We are suddenly aliens here. Or as Paul says, ambassadors, someone who represents the king in a foreign land while our homeland lies somewhere else. In other words, this world is not our home. And this is what we need to understand. Because of this radical shift, moving from death to life, from lost to found, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, we will often find ourselves quickly bombarded with things in life that test our newfound faith. See, when we say we want to trust in Jesus, it suddenly gets real when we actually have to follow through. We can talk a big game about trusting in God, whatever circumstances may come, and God will bring those circumstances and say, just like Jesus did to his disciples, what about now? See, when we say we want to trust in Jesus, it gets real when we actually have to follow through. It's sort of like, uh, you can go to the next slide there, Nathan. It's sort of like saying, maybe an illustration here, it's sort of like saying you trust in a parachute. 
It's real easy to stand here and say, oh yeah, I trust in a parachute that's going to float me safely down to earth. And that's basically what the disciples said in our passage. They look at Jesus and they go, oh, now we understand. Now, now we see, now we believe that you came from God. Oh, oh, Jesus, that's easy, Jesus, we got it. And Jesus looks them right in the eye and he says, those are some fancy words, but you haven't jumped yet. You see, there's an 18th century theologian and pastor, Jonathan Edwards, who was someone who grew to have a deep and genuine faith in Christ. And one writer describes Jonathan Edwards this way. You'll see it on the screen here. Jonathan Edwards simply walked with God. His mind was fixed on things above. He exalted in this world no further than that such exaltation brought his mind to rest on another world. Edwards was out of place in this world, blessedly out of place. How did he get this way? How do you become almost otherworldly in your, your, your walk of faith? It was not through ease and comfort, I can tell you that. If you read about Edward's life, he grew through learning to, to see God's goodness in the midst of divinely ordained troubles that tested his faith. He, in fact, was rejected and publicly humiliated at one point in his ministry, and he has to grapple with these deeper realities of trusting in God. You see, at one point, Edwards wrote to a friend, he said in a letter to a friend, I have much to learn to behave as a pilgrim and stranger on earth. He says, if we would have Christ, we must be cut down as to our worldly happiness. We naturally place our happiness in the things of this world, yet to part with all the world and sell all for Christ is like death to us. Deny yourself, Jesus says, daily, Take up your cross and follow me. See, this process, an illustration that's helped me, this process can sometimes be like encountering waves. If you've been to the ocean and you've waded out to swim in the ocean, you can feel as you get kind of ankle deep and knee deep in the ocean, the breakers flowing in and hitting you in the legs and then the waist, and it becomes more of a tug and a pull the deeper you go. And there's a sense where, similar to uh, smaller struggles in our lives, we can feel them tug and pull at us, and maybe they get us off balance, but then we recover, and, and, and we don't even really take our eyes off of the things of this world. We say, wow, I did a great job at recovering from that struggle, and we stand back up again. And in many ways, those smaller trials can nudge us off balance, but we quickly recover. We think we've got this. But what, what, what is important about this, and this pastor I was referring to, Dane Ortland, he says this about this metaphor. He says, those who live into their later years and are quietly walking with the Lord from a posture of fundamental trust have often weathered something deeper. At some point in their lives, a wave washes over them that cannot be outjumped. And somehow they survived. They softened rather than hardened. He says we must, all of us, come to a point in life 
where we will often find these moments where for the first time, suddenly we have to bank all that we are on Christ, that our trust is proved or not. See, this is precisely why Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you will have troubles in this world. But take heart, I have overcome. He is telling his disciples, you are about to encounter a wave that is going to engulf you. As he goes to the cross, it will swallow them up. And he looks at them and says, what are you going to do? He's, Jesus is not promising to remove their struggles. He's, he, even as they're about to endure the incredible challenges of the next couple days, and then of course the rest of their lives in the early church, all of the persecution that happened, some of them executed, some of them scattered. He says, I promise you, when that wave engulfs you, I give you my peace because you have me. Friends, the same is true for us. In this world, we will have trouble. But our king is the overcomer. And, and this is my prayer for you. And I know some of you are going through some real struggles right now. Or maybe you've yet to. Is that we would have that peace in our hearts of walking with Christ, especially when we're overwhelmed with waves that we can't outjump. My challenge to you is this, trust fully in him. Throw yourself in dependence upon him. Give your heart fully to him. Taste and see that he is good. Patiently wait upon the Lord as the psalmist says, even in the midst of that dark time, God is good. He is faithful. He sees and knows what you experience. See, Jonathan Edwards, who I mentioned earlier, he once preached this. You'll see it on the screen. He says, Have you had that divine comfort that has seemed to heal your soul and put life and strength into you and given you peace after trouble and rest after labor and pain? Have you tasted that spiritual food, that bread from heaven that is so sweet and so satisfying, so much better than the richest earthly pleasures? He's speaking of... Jesus Christ himself. Seek him. Seek him. In full surrender and dependence upon him, he has overcome at the cross. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for your uh, encouragement, your uh, peace to be upon us, that I know... In our church family, there have been seasons of life where many of us have gone through difficulties. There's seasons now where we're going through what feels like a wave that has engulfed us that we can't stand up in anymore. You have told us we will have troubles. In the midst of that, Lord, you give us your peace. You have overcome let those waves cast us upon the shore at the foot of the cross at your feet, Lord, to just say we are in full surrender to you afresh. That we need you, Lord. I pray for that heart to be true for each one of us, Lord, that you would show us, give us that encouragement today. 
Draw us near into your intimate presence and fellowship by your spirit, Lord. That we would see and know your goodness in the midst of those difficulties. Give us refreshment in that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.